Welcome back to Midwretched. Welcome back, friends. We're glad that you're here, and we are glad that we are here, as always. Yay! It is a beautiful, rainy weekend here in the Midwest. It is. It is. It's May. It's May Day. Happy May Day. Yes, indeed, which won't be when this episode comes out, but But it does mean that my entire TikTok is videos of, it's gonna be May. It's gonna be May. Which makes me really happy. That's good. I'm glad. Yeah. What are you drinking tonight? Um, I am drinking um, the last little bit of a whiskey sour cocktail that we prepared to taste test for the wedding. Oh, really? Do you like it? It is very, very good. I think it needs to be stronger. Um, <laughs> Boo thinks that it shouldn't be. But my worry is if it's not strong enough, people are going to drink it like way faster. <laughs> Oh, okay. Also, has he ever seen your family drink? I know. I know. So. I might need to remind them that there's liquor in here. Yeah, because if they don't, if it's not like punch you in the face strong, your family's going to be like, ooh, water that's not clear. Ooh, orange juice. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We need to prepare for the, you have to know your audience. Yeah. So no, it's very tasty. It is whiskey um fresh squeezed orange juice and fresh squeezed lemon juice and a little seltzer water oh cute i like that very tasty very tasty sounds very drinkable so yeah and look forward to it at wedding times yeah nice um what's everybody in my house drinking as you can see murder husband is behind me preparing the baby's uh feeding tube cocktail for the evening it's yes 27 calorie fortified baby formula straight into your stomach via g2 button Mm. delicious would i like that more than eating probably not (laughs) sometimes i wonder though like just the efficiency of it all if i could just like for one meal a day not have to feed myself and just have it magically appear in my stomach maybe for breakfast but like i don't know eating is such like a pleasure thing for me yeah which is what's hard with these babies because we Mm -hmm. have to teach her that eating is pleasurable but she has this like heavily fortified formula that's not like normal milk. So it's either like you add extra powder to breast milk or you add like twice as much powder to water. It's basically mm. like a protein shake. Yeah. So it's it's pretty gnarly. Is it tasty? Like the stuff that she actually eats? Uh, it would be if she was eating the regular ratio, I think. Like if she was eating, like my first baby loved formula. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's just like it's, it has a very strong smell to it. I think all formula does, but it's a lot of it's a lot of dairy. Yeah. So I have water and a Coke Zero for later, and a Founders Rubeus, which is <gasps> I thought I saw a Rubeus. Oh, I love that one. It's such a good beer. I'm usually such like a stouts and porters person, mm-hmm. but Rubeus Same. is just life. You know, it's really tasty. Mm-hmm. Is if you float a chocolate stout on top of the rubeus oh stop that sounds amazing okay i'll have to buy one if you ever get a chance to actually go to founders in grand rapids they often have a nitro rubeus on tap Ooh. it's unreal i feel like that is a trip that we should make in the near future yes we should go to grand rapids for lots of reasons it's also weird that we haven't really had cases there yet yeah yeah but it's a very wholesome mm. area so I'll, I'll find something it's too wholesome. So many DeVosses. Lots of DeVosses. 
I mean, they commit a lot of crimes. Yeah, true. (laughs) They just pay their way out of them. I bet there is a, like, a line of bodies out the DeVos household. Probably. Yeah, that's worth investigating. And they're all reptilians, so. They're all reptilians. Yeah, so there's got to be something there. Yes, so I'm triple fisting tonight. Nice. Because I feel like I'm going to have to hydrate a lot for this episode. All right. What are we doing? What are we doing? Okay. So we're going to be telling the story in a little bit of a zigzag, but I just need you to trust me. Okay. (laughs) So if you trust me, I'll go ahead and get started. I trust you with my life. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I would, in fact, save your life. We're going to talk today about the I-65 killer. Uh, Now, this case was solved very, very recently, just a few weeks ago. By the time this episode drops, it'll have been about four weeks So I want to first start with how this case was solved, and then we'll kind of backtrack into what actually happened. I'm not going to give you our uh, our perpetrator yet, but I kind of want to talk about the mechanism by which this case is solved, because it includes some buzzwords that I think we hear of a lot in true crime, but we might not know actually how this process works. So I'm going to get really geeky about genetic genealogy. Hell yes. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. I've wanted to do this for forever. I'm fairly certain I'm related to some terrible people. I I am pretty certain that I am too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as I use myself as an example for um, my conversation here, you'll probably see why. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm going to try not to do like a lot of self-indulgent tangents, but I used my own family tree as kind of an example just to illustrate the the way that this works. I'm excited. Okay, Okay. let's go. So I feel like the big misnomer is that when it comes to genetic genealogy, that there are police officers cracking away at like 23andMe trying to find connections between known DNA samples and uh, samples from a scene. That is not how this works. Uh, That's not how this works at all. So basically, here's how it goes. Okay. DNA is gathered at a scene. And there are several ways in which it can flow. And this is, if we can think back to our Jane Mixer case, this also assumes uh, a high degree of integrity in the scientific process. So we're going to assume the best in that realm, right? I have a high degree of faith in the scientific process. Oh, absolutely. It's the people that carry out that process. Exactly. That are prone to error. And what I love about genetic genealogy is that it's both a hard and a soft science. So here's how it goes. Okay. DNA is left at a scene. DNA will be cataloged and run through CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System, and any relevant state DNA indexing systems. I note that because CODIS is run by the FBI, and most states do contribute, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that samples are run through state departments as well for those states that are not currently giving information to CODIS or contributing to CODIS, I should say. It's also not mandatory to contribute to CODIS, is it? It's no, voluntary. It's, not. it's yeah. voluntary, yeah. It's certainly a best practice, states that don't do it. Hey. Hey. Right to your states. Congress people, friends. So, um, okay, so DNA is run through that system and say it catches an identity match because that person has been previously arrested and has a sample already in the database. That's fantastic. That's how you want it to go. An investigation can be open and shut from there. Um, yay, go along with your day. That's fantastic. Okay. <laughs> the next option 
is that it runs into a match to another unidentified sample from another case, as in the same person committed two different crimes, but they do not have an identified sample within the system. That sucks because you don't have a perpetrator identified, but it's advantageous because at least now you have a link between crimes. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can develop a pattern. You can figure out like, okay, if this crime was committed in Detroit, Michigan, and then this next one was committed in Toledo, Ohio, that tells us that he's moving south. Or maybe he works between the two places. You can start to build, you know, some degree of a profile, right? A third option is no match at all. And that sucks. Okay. So genetic genealogy offers another path wherein investigators can run a DNA sample through open source genealogy databases. The most prominent one is called GEDmatch, G-E-D match. If you have ever done a DNA test through Ancestry.com or 23andMe, those are not open source uh, genetics databases. They are, mm -hmm. They're closed source, but what you can do is you own your own DNA information. So you can download, I recommend people do this, you can download your particular DNA file, upload it into GEDmatch, click the little box that says, yes, authorized for use by legal investigations. And now your DNA could potentially contribute to the solution of the case. Yay. Yay. We like that. We like that. It's a lot of statistics and calculus that goes behind trying to find and make that calculation. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm going to talk about that too. Yes. So um, basically what they're able to do then is to find close relatives of a perpetrator. We're going to talk about that process a little bit. So, uh, when you are able to do this, you can use some process of elimination, uh, and then investigators can kind of chase down like person-specific leads based on that genealogy. What's cool about this is that in recent years, a few very prominent cases have been solved in this way. Mm -hmm. Most notably, in my view, the Golden State Killer case. Yep, Joseph he's the D'Angelo. one I always think of. Me too. Yep. Uh, and the Bear Brooks murders, there's a little bit of genealogy stuff at play there as well. That case is crazy. If you guys oh ever want to really like mind fuck, yeah. listen to the Bear Brook podcast. Holy cow. That podcast is insane. Like that's it one of those ones. Up. Yeah. Where I'd be like, um, like my fat little fingers just like furiously trying to click to the next one, <laughs> like careening my car off the highway. Like, give me the next one. <laughs> so anyway. good. So good. Anyway. So I want to be clear again that it is not actually law enforcement officers who do the actual genealogical work, okay? These profiles will be handed off typically to a genetic genealogist. Those people, by and large, are uh, volunteers who have particular expertise or knowledge in working with kind of hardcore genealogy, okay? Mm -hmm. For example, a genetic genealogist would be given a profile of DNA to compare to other profiles on something like GEDmatch, okay? They would first look and get a list of close matches. And then how many close matches they would get would tell them how much work is ahead of them. So mm -hmm. there's only a handful of like first and second cousin level matches, but there's thousands of third and fourth level, like third and fourth cousin level matches. That's going to be a lot of work, right? But if there's first to second cousin type of matches, that means that somebody with a fairly close genetic link is in GEDmatch for them to start working with if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So for simplicity's sake, to talk through this process, I'm going to use myself. Okay. And I'm going to use the numbers that I have on Ancestry.com, which is not an open source DNA platform. Like I said, uh, it's just what I have where I can see how many matches I have. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm just using it for that purpose. I am on GEDmatch. And uh, it's very possible also that you could have been in a tree that solved a crime, but you wouldn't know about it because they might not need to actually talk to you. But you could have been, you know, linked to somebody, you know, in a process like this. Perhaps your fourth cousins with the Golden State Killer. I don't know. That's scary. I know, right? So, uh, okay. So if I look at my Ancestry.com profile, I have 12 people listed as first to second cousin level matches. This does not necessarily mean that we are actually first or second cousins. What this means is that the percentage of DNA that we share is in a particular range of closeness. These types of databases cannot tell how you are related to somebody. They can tell how much you are related to somebody. So I know, for example, that my top two matches are, in fact, my first cousins. Mm -hmm. Okay. The third one is a guy I've never heard of, which for my family is not unusual because I do not know my father's family at all. Yeah. So the first two, I think it's interesting how many people in my father's family are on Ancestry. I think because we're all just like, who the fuck are we? <laughs> who are you? Because there's there's no there's no nothing. Um, yeah. Lots of mystery, lots of drama, lots of uh, bad bad people. Lots of people looking for connections where they don't have them. Exactly, exactly. So the third one, like I said, guy I've never heard of. The fourth and fifth one are people I know to be my more of my first cousins. The next three, don't know. The next one after that is my second cousin. My Aunt Kathy's kid. Mm-hmm. And the one after that is my grandfather's brother. So that's just, I just say all that to say that when I say a first to second cousin level match, that is also going to include uh, somebody like my grandfather's brother or could include, um, you know, kind of random like aunts and cousins and stuff like that that are, you know, kind of shifted in one way or another, either removal or generational. So basically what a genetic genealogist would do is take that list of close matches, um, which would mean even less to them at first glance than it does to me, which is saying something. (laughs) And they would make clusters of those matches by name or proximity or region, dates, etc. Those clusters would then be curated into family trees and then built out wide enough to see where those trees converge and create commonality. Mm -hmm. So... Let's say that they did a treat for my first cousin who pops up as my closest match. She and my closest, my next closest match are siblings. So if we build out that tree, like, oh, there's a couple of matches there. That's promising. You'd find out who their parents are and build on that. Find out who their parents' siblings are. Build on that. Name the grandparents and so on. And then perhaps the next one, you build that tree out. A pattern starts to emerge. Some shared grandparents. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, cool. Let's look at all the children now. Right? Mm-hmm. And then perhaps they're also looking at a family tree, uh, building out the family tree of my great uncle, who is my mom's uncle, my maternal grandfather's brother. Who does he come from? Who is he related to? Who are his siblings? Who are his siblings' children? No matches yet. Who are their grandchildren? Aha! Now, both me and my brother appear in both trees, right? Mm -hmm. So two separate trees have been built. Now there's two names in common. A genetic genealogist can now pass those two names along to law enforcement. And they could then look into myself and look into my brother, right? That's a very simplified version of how this process would go uh, because the information is not that easy as what kind of exists off the top of my head about my own lineage, right? Um, Yeah. But that would be the process, okay? Like a list of matches, clusters of matches, trees, 
comparative trees, uh, drilling down, siphoning down, finding commonality, eliminating possibilities. Um, but you can also kind of look at like certain brackets of tightness, right? Like if we know mm-hmm. that, you know, the person whose samples is at play in my, in my example, if that sample comes from 2017, we mm-hmm. know it's not going to be my cousin that died in 2009, right? So you can strike that one off the, even if it would be a, you know, a, a match that would otherwise work, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that I like the explanation because I think a lot of people do think it's very simple, like, oh, you just, you look for the DNA into GEDmatch and it pops up, but there's so much back end work that goes into it. Yes. Yeah, the legwork on genealogy is crazy. It's like, I have no access to my father's family, like really at all. There's a nose, there's a great head of hair, there's nothing else. Okay. So, <laughs> but like my mom's family, I've got that. I have, I'm a avid genealogist. I've got her family traced back to the uh, 1200s. Wow. Yeah. I got, that was my like early pandemic hobby was making like the whipped coffee and doing genealogy. <laughs> So, and playing Civ 5. I think it was Civilization 5. Yeah, I missed out on that whole, like, having pandemic hobbies thing. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. I was living my best life, really, before I knew how ugly this was going to get. When it was like, oh, by May, we'll be normal. Hmm. Not so. I was in healthcare. Yeah, you were. You were. And I'm sorry about that. It's okay, but no, no, I... I've always been fascinated by genetic genealogy, and I, I do. I think that it takes so much back end work. Yeah, it's a lot of legwork. I don't remember where I saw it, but I saw um, a long time ago when looking into something else. Just like anecdotally, somebody who worked as a genetic genealogist took a picture of their desk while working on a case, and it was like cartoonishly cluttered with stuff. And yeah, I mean, we're talking like potentially thousands of hours of work to to siphon through all this information Mm -hmm. yeah it's a lot and all that is only possible if people have submitted their dna to open source uh, databases like gedmatch which Mm -hmm. is the one Mm -hmm. that is most commonly used so again if you've done these types of dna tests please submit your stuff to gedmatch you don't know who you could be helping but you could very well be helping you could be solving a crime. You could be helping somebody. I've been wanting to do it for forever, and I just haven't bought the kit yet. And it's one of those open source things that, like, the more people do it, the more accurate it is. Exactly. Exactly. Because, again, like I said, like, if you open up a list of matches and you're a genetic genealogist and you're looking at 500 fourth cousin level matches and, like, that's it, mm-hmm. you are looking at an astronomical amount of work, right? Yeah. I don't even want to know how many, like, distant cousin matches I have. My family's on both sides fucking huge. Yeah. I um, I liked doing it. I enjoyed doing it. However, I discovered secrets. And I actually had somebody contact me who was also my first cousin. And he's like, hey, I'm your first cousin. I was adopted. Can you help me figure out who I am? And I'm like, bro. Yikes. Yeah. Um, He's a wonderful person, and I adore him, and I'm really glad that I know him now. But weirdly, he's the only cousin on my father's side that I know because he contacted me on Ancestry and was like, can you help me figure out who I am? 
Oh God, that's so random. It was, it was. And I'm like, I don't know these people, but I can help you like search obituaries because they're all dead because they all had awful lives um, and help you figure out. He has actually the one mother that's still living um, and she's a kind of a hot mess express. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we got a couple of those. So that's genetic genealogy, okay? Keep that in mind as how um, this case got solved later on. But I'm going to take us back to the way back before then, okay? How, how way back are we going? Uh, we're going to uh, a time when little Mick was just a wee bairn of four days old. <gasps> It is February 21st, 1987. I was so fat and happy. Oh, I'm sure you were so cute. Just snoozing away in your bed, in your crib, in suburban Dayton. So adorable. All rolls all the time. You were. But unfolding not too far away from you was something way less serene. No, that's the scary part is this wasn't too far away from suburban Dayton. <laughs> no, it's really not. It's really not. We're kind of back in this uh, Kentuckiana region today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we'll come back up through uh, my region. So at 6.30-ish a.m. at the Super 8 Motel outside of Elizabethtown, Kentucky, a guest walks up to the counter looking to get some help. They waited and they waited and no one came to the counter. The place was a mess. The guest described it as total disarray when he called the police. The police arrived a very short time later. Elizabethtown is a small town. It's very cute, historic. When you do like little Google Street View, it just drops at random places. It's lots of like, you know how little historic towns have really cute street signs. It's that kind of town vibe. I think Elizabethtown only has a couple thousand people, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's small. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's very small. We're going to be in a lot of very small towns today, um, other than uh, one of them. The scariest towns. Yes, right? Uh, and again, I recognize that we're in Kentucky, but we don't end in Kentucky. We do start here. Okay. Uh, Elizabethtown is about 45 minutes south of Louisville. Um, I realized the other day as I was thinking and kind of listening to a couple of our episodes that we do that Midwestern thing where we describe distance in terms of time taken to travel. It makes more sense to me than anything else. To me too. But listeners, if you hate it, send us an email. uh, I'm not going to change. I might. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a people pleaser. (laughs) I typically am unless there's logic behind it. Because here's the thing. Also, I have lived in suburban Ohio and I have lived in Chicago and mileage means nothing in either of those places. Right. Yeah. Same here. Like I couldn't tell you, I want to say from my house to downtown South Bend is maybe 15 miles, but I know it Mm -hmm. takes me 23 minutes. Like legit. I could drive from my house to your house most days in the same time it takes me to drive from my house to work in during rush hour that's accurate that's totally accurate and you're talking about like maybe what 20 miles versus uh Mm -hmm. 100 yeah 90 something like that yeah yeah so So that's why we talk about time 
yeah, that's the why. <laughs> that is the why. Let us know if you hate us for it, and Mick will do nothing. So... <laughs> <laughs> So when the patrolman arrived at the scene, um, it was described at that point as looking like a brawl had taken place. We're talking papers everywhere, furniture overturned and thrown around, uh, a phone ripped out of the wall. So it, to the responding officer, it looked like there had been a fight and that maybe the front desk clerk got caught up in it because the front desk clerk still had not shown up to the desk so and was nowhere to be found. So... His team started to kind of pace the halls of this motel. It's a small two-story motel. Uh, it's still standing. Uh, it's still a Super 8, but it got they all got bought out by Wyndham. But it's still there. Uh, you can street view it. It's a little bit more built up now than it was in the late 80s, but mm-hmm. you can still get a scene of kind of how it, you know, was. And it's very typical, like, you know how, like, before you get into a lot of towns, you have, like, the hotel row, like, a couple exits before, oh, yeah. like, anything yeah. actually relevant, you know? yeah. That's very much what this was. So the desk clerk that they were looking for was Vicki Lucille Heath. And so one of the responding officers said, okay, let's go and check outside of the property and just do some uh, circles around the building. This is where he found Vicki. Vicki's body was laying in the grass behind the motel, muddied from the melting snow. She was dressed, but her clothes were torn and tattered. Um, in various places. She had clearly been shot in the head and a set of footprints led away from her body and ended in fresh tire tracks. Hardin County Coroner William H. Lee Jr. performed the autopsy on Vicki's body. Uh, and that's when the story really began to unfold. So the scene at the hotel heavily suggested robbery as a main motive, given how much disarray there was. There was a small amount of money missing from the till. Um, hotels don't typically keep a lot of money. Even then, you would still, you know, try to run as many things through credit as possible just because they are dealing in, you know, decent amounts of cash and things like that. So there wasn't a lot of money to be taken, but what was there was was gone. She had been brutally raped and sodomized. She was shot twice in the head, once behind her left ear with a thirty-eight caliber gun. A rape kit was taken, which included a strong DNA sample that was stored for later use. It's the late 80s. Uh, We know that DNA is starting to get its foothold a bit in forensic science, but it's not quite as robust as it is now. So people know enough to take the samples and store them properly, um, but not quite enough to like run it right now and get an answer, right? Mm -hmm. Detectives were also able to, uh, one of the bullets was an in and out wound. So they were able to recall the bullet from the sidewalk beneath her, uh, and it was still relatively intact to be used for ballistics later. So uh, one of the biggest kind of unfortunate things about the scene was that the temperature had been kind of like ping-ponging above and below um, freezing. So even though there was a small amount, like less than a quarter inch of fresh snow, it was that bushy stuff. That so gross late February, like yeah, icy, slushy, snowy. Exactly. So you could see that there was a footprint, but you wouldn't be able to tell like the kind of shoe or really even the even size. The size. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and certainly not the kind like tire treads or anything like that. Um, so we knew that somebody was at the scene, but, you know, couldn't tell what kind of shoe or what size shoe or what kind of vehicle. So I'll talk about Vicky a little bit. What little that we do know. She was 41 at the time of her murder. Uh, She was a Kentucky native. 
She had spent time in the Air Force. When she had started working at the Super 8, she had already been a single mom for a long time, but had recently gotten engaged to be remarried. Her, she took the job at the Super 8 basically to earn some extra money. It was supposed to be pretty relaxed. Elizabethtown is a quiet area. The highway runs right through it, so the hotel would get, you know, overnight truckers and things like that. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty. Uh, so you might get, like, a small degree of tourism, but probably not a ton would be my guess. Probably a lot of drive through yeah, kind of tourists kind yeah. of on their way down to the Smokies or something like that. Right. It would be a great, like, halfway stopping point between, um, you know, if you're driving from, like, Chicago to Atlanta, it would be a good, like, halfway point. So at that night, the motel was at uh, about 50% capacity, which was typical for the hotel. Uh, generally, kind of what they ran was 50% occupancy. Her manager had worked alongside her until 11 p.m., at which point he left uh, and she continued the night shift on her own. As far as a uh, time frame, that's all we got. Okay. For whatever information was able to be gotten, nobody had contacted Vicky between about 11 o'clock when her manager left and uh, 7.30 when her body was eventually found. It did take them about an hour of searching the property before they found her. Uh, obviously, she had been there for longer than that one hour. So the only time frame we have is sometime between 11 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. was when Vicky's murder took place. Um, and that also was typical. Uh, Vicky was well known for reading lots of romance novels. That was her thing. <laughs> and she got a lot of reading done because usually nobody came to the desk until um, that 6.30, 7 o'clock dawn-ish time frame for some of those early checkouts, your truckers and people trying to get like an early lead on their drives to different places. So all of the guests of the motel were questioned. Nobody heard anything. There was no scuffles heard. Nobody recalled hearing gunshots, um, nothing like that. All of the guests were cleared. Vicky's circle was looked into. Her fiancé was obviously a first, you know, or second go-to after kind of surveying the hotel. That person was cleared very, very quickly. Um, everybody checked out. And so police had to conclude that whoever had robbed, assaulted, raped, and murdered Vicky uh, had just been passing through town. So I am now going to take us, uh, we've got a couple of years, okay, mm -hmm. before we have a next case to talk about, or next crime, I should say. So now it is March 2nd of 1989. We have a time of the year cropping up, right? Which I think is mm -hmm. very interesting. So for Peggy Gill, that night was going to be spent picking up a shift at the days in that she worked at in Merrillville, Indiana. So Merrillville, Indiana is basically an exurb of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So it's now I know it as kind of like um, a lot of strip malls, a lot of uh, yeah. like decent shopping. There's a good mall there. Uh, it's where the Joe's Crab Shack is that I learned I was deathly allergic to shellfish. Super fun oh. memories. Um, okay. Yeah, no good. Um but other than that, I just like picture kind of suburban sprawl, basically. Um, yeah. And the I-65 runs right through it. Okay. Should we explain where the I-65 goes in relation? Like it basically goes 
south, like straight south mm-hmm. east, slightly east. Yeah, let me uh, look at the whole run of it just so that we have the. Uh... I-65 is a major north-south interstate highway in the central United States. Its southern terminus is Mobile, Alabama, and its northern terminus is Gary, Indiana, which is just north of Merrillville, where we find ourselves on this night in March. So northern Indiana to Alabama. Mm-hmm, to the Gulf. To the Gulf. All right. So uh, it's a huge, huge, huge highway. Runs through cities like Indianapolis, Louisville, Nashville, Huntsville, Birmingham, Montgomery, uh, before it ends in Mobile. So it's a Thursday night. Peggy Gill goes to uh, her shift at the Days Inn in Merrillville. The Days Inn is at the intersection of I-65 and US-30, which is uh, a smaller highway that intersects um, in like downtown-ish Merrillville. This exit was certainly a major hub for um, kind of like that spot in Elizabethtown, but to a much greater degree. Truckers, mm-hmm. uh, long-distance oh, yeah. travelers of many different kinds. It would be a major, major like pull-off destination for food, gas, especially before you get into like the Chicago area, which is really terrible to drive in. So, um, <laughs> and it's like... You're welcome. Lots of, again, like I said, like lots of fast food, lots of these chain hotels, things like that. It was like that in the late 80s, and it's like that now. Yeah. So um, Peggy arrived at the Days Inn a little bit before 11 o'clock p.m. She, too, was an overnight shift desk clerk at the hotel. Um, it was one difference in this one versus Vicky's is that it was a busy night uh, for the Days Inn, and it was in general, just a busier hotel given its location. Mm-hmm. So they had about 70 guests uh, that night. So the other clerk hung out for 15 to 20 minutes after Peggy arrived, uh, just to kind of help with some of that overflow. We know that for, by and large, her shift started off like pretty peacefully. She had check-ins with her manager, Betty, uh, over the phone periodically through her shift, typically. And she had at one point called Betty or Betty had called her shortly, like in the 11 o'clock hour uh, where Peggy said, "Eh, it's kind of a boring night so far. So at about um, 1.30 to 1.40 a.m., Peggy checked in a guest who said that it was a pretty normal check-in. He didn't. Peggy did not seem agitated or anything like that. At around 2 o'clock, an 18-year-old college student arrived at the Days Inn attempting to check in, and nobody was at the front desk. No guests, no employees, nothing like that. Uh, He waited for uh, a few minutes before just leaving and going to the next hotel next door. So this is how we get a sliver of a window for uh, what happened to Peggy to have occurred. So between 1.30-ish and 2 o'clock-ish a.m. is uh, the time of Peggy's murder. At 5 o'clock, Peggy was supposed to check in with her boss, Betty, uh, and she didn't call. So 
Uh, that was very, very unusual for Peggy. She was not typically one to miss uh, any of these phone calls. So because of that, Betty started to call the front desk and, you know, was phones ringing off the hook. No one's answering it. And that's when Betty calls the police. The police arrived just after 6 a.m. And uh, what he was greeted by when he got there, that initial um, responding officer, was a lot of guests wanting to check out of the hotel. uh, (laughs) And nobody was there. Nobody was there. So the police, uh, their first thought was to call Peggy's family. Peggy was very close to her dad, Terry. And actually the next day was her dad's birthday. So uh, it was also upsetting and unusual for Peggy I should say her her full her full name was Mary Margaret. She went by Peggy. She was very close with her dad. She was not going to miss his birthday. The last thing she actually said to him was like, "Happy birthday, old man. See you tomorrow." Uh, before she went to work, so she would not have run off. Yeah. So police contact her family, and they see that obviously, their fa- the family does not know where she is. They describe her vehicle, and the police are able to corroborate that her vehicle is still in the parking lot of the hotel. So she did not leave. On her own. Right, on her own. Uh, They also found her car keys and wallet uh, behind the desk, so she did not leave on her own. But unlike the scene at Vicky's murder, things did not appear to be in disarray. They even thought, like, okay, this is a huge hotel. Maybe there was an issue overnight. Maybe she felt ill and needed to crash in a room and she's like snoozing somewhere. Um, There was not an immediate reach for, you know, like a a nefarious conclusion. It's it's also been two years since uh, Vicky's murder and a whole state away. So it's not as though people are like, oh my gosh, this is so Oh, it's happening again. They haven't made that connection. Exactly. Yeah. Also, like in general, like you're... Most people want to rule out everything non-murder related. Exactly. Right. We want it to be the most kind of simple solution possible. Um, So Betty finally, uh, the bot, her boss, Betty finally arrived at the hotel and uh, kind of quickly dashed the hopes that things had gone um, kind of in a mundane way, because even though there was not any sign of a particular struggle, the cash drawer in the hotel had been pried open and money was missing. Betty was able to count later that about $179 to $185, give or take, was missing uh, from the cash drawer. So again, not a huge amount of money. But now we know that um, there was a robbery that took place and uh, Peggy is missing as a result of that robbery. Betty was also able to share with them another really crucial piece of information was that even though there was 70 rooms used in the hotel that night, there was a whole wing of the hotel that was vacant at the time. So when police had gotten there, you know, they're going door to door in the parts of the hotel that are occupied. Yeah. Not realizing that there's this whole unoccupied part of the hotel uh, that's not like immediately visible from where they had kind of started. Any reason why, why was that part vacant? Uh, it was closed for winter. I assume just to um, oh, keep yeah. down on like maintenance and stuff like that. Bigger hotels will do that where it's like the fourth floor isn't open from, you know, seasonally just so it's they're not going to get the guests anyway. So I offer it. 
Yeah, so that way they don't have to worry about cleaning it or updating exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. nothing weird, nothing weird. Okay. And it was in that vacant wing that Peggy's body was found. Interestingly, uh, her body was found at the furthest possible interior space from the front desk of the hotel. Okay. Right next to a fire exit. Interesting. The other thing that was different about Peggy's uh, murder scene versus Vicky's was that Peggy was fully nude, uh, but her clothes were folded neatly next to her. So when you're looking at these two scenes, um, what immediately comes to my mind is the difference between the two. And you tell me what you think, because I feel like I'm uh, really talking and not giving you a lot of space. No, you're good. You're good. You're good. I'm just fascinated. Cool. Yeah, right. Um, So to me, what that difference says is whatever happened between Vicky and the perpetrator was um, ugly from the jump. Right. So Vicky, when Vicky was found, was there anything notable about the scene? Was she dressed? Was she? She was still in her clothes, but they were torn. Okay. Uh, And they're big tears, like chest torn open. Uh, she was wearing a plaid skirt, plaid skirt, like, torn halfway open, that kind of stuff. So to me, this is, like, really impulsive, really aggressive, really, like, letting the rage take over. Yeah, yeah. And the scene at the the desk, too, communicated that, right? Like, we've got chairs upside down. We've got papers, like, flung everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This scene, police didn't even think that a robbery had taken place until yeah. Betty was like, yo, look at this cash drawer. <laughs> it's been crowbarred open. So what it, what it seems to me in Peggy's case is that perhaps our perpetrator in the impulsivity of that first scene decided to try to catch more flies with honey at the mm-hmm. second scene uh, to approach Peggy more um, cautiously, more slowly, more planfully, more yeah. planned, more methodically. And it was believed that she was led to that kind of far part of the hotel and that she took off her own clothes and folded them, like was ordered to take off her clothes and had kind of folded them next to herself. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So that was the kind of common belief given the, and I'm apt to agree, given the two very different scenes. So there's definitely like evolution here. Yes, and that's what I'm suggesting. Otherwise, there's not a lot to link the two women like particularly demographically, Peggy was 24, Vicky was 41. I will say this, that um, some of the sources of the time of Vicky's murder uh, were a little bit sloppy on the dates. Some, Mm. if you look into this, some newspapers are going to say she was 38. Others are going to say that she was 41. Uh, When you look at her grave, her (laughs) Ancestry.com genealogy profile, she was 41. Okay. Okay. Peggy was 24. So, you know, a bigger age difference. The similarity, though, women alone, front shift uh, or front desk shift overnight at a hotel chain off of the I-65. Was there any security footage at this time? Mm-mm. Okay. I don't think so. I was like, eh, 87, 88. It's real. Yeah. Dicey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you might have gotten it in some places, but you didn't get it here. Like the real fancy places. Right, Not exactly. In Not in Days and in Merrillville. Yeah. Yeah. Like Vicky, Peggy had been violently raped uh, and also shot twice in the head with a twenty-two, Again, behind the left ear. Hmm. This also suggests to me, 
an execution style killing. Yeah. Where there's a very deliberate modus operandi of how I'm going to shoot these women, right? So what kind of became interesting is that there became kind of two schools of thought very distinctly. One, that this was a rampage, spontaneous, he arrived, he saw Peggy, he flipped, right? Um, Others would instead say, no, it was too clean. Uh, It had to have been more planned, more deliberate. This guy probably knew that it was a woman working alone. So kind of two different schools of thought that may or may not have kind of colored the investigation at the time. Mm -hmm. But what kind of arose as the prominent theory was that Peggy was taken at gunpoint to the place of her uh, murder uh, and that she, you know, went quietly. So as with Vicky's case, Peggy's inner circle was investigated Every guest of the hotel was investigated. Um, Nothing came up. But what was insane about this case, I don't know if you know this or not, but the exact same thing was going to happen about an hour away on the same night. What? Mm -hmm. So we're still on March 2nd, okay? So Jean Gilbert is working the front desk at the Days Inn in Reddington, Indiana, which is about 50 miles away from Merrillville, also located off of the I-65. One of the big difference is that Reddington is a very, very, very small town mm-hmm. versus um, Merrillville, which is kind of more of a hub uh, in the area. So just like Peggy... Jean started her shift at 11 p.m. Tragically, Jean was not originally scheduled for this shift. She picked it up so that she could switch shifts with somebody else so that she could go to a cheerleading event for her daughter on the next day. Damn it. Yeah. Jean was a really cool lady. She was a hardworking single mom. She had two kids who were teenagers in high school. She worked as a bookkeeper part-time and then the night shift at the days in part-time at night. Um, and she liked that because it helped her to um, have some quiet time, just like Vicky liked to read during her shifts. <laughs> uh, Jean needed the time to study because she was also uh, a business major at St. Joseph's College in nearby Rensselaer, Indiana. Damn, Jean. I know. She really had a lot going on. She was well-loved, um, just sounds like a really cool lady, like well-loved, yeah. funny, lively, and obviously really, really driven and really focused. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, a, a dogged pursuit of her goals, right? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I just really want to keep that part of Jean's personality alive in our conversation, you know? She um, sounds pretty kick-ass. She does. She does. So just like I said with Peggy... The 11 o'clock shift is when uh, Jean started. And similarly, actually, to Peggy's case, the clerk that she was um, taking over for stuck around for a little bit of time. Uh, Jean's coworker stuck around for an hour, whereas Peggy's had stuck around for 10, 15 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. 
So at about midnight was when uh, Jean's colleague left for the night. So like you would guess, right? Um, it was a quiet night. Reddington is an extremely small town, even though it's also northern Indiana, and I've actually driven through it. I could not point to Reddington uh, on a map. I'll just Google it again just for my own. Yeah, oh my gosh. So tiny, population of about 1,000. The I-65 runs right through it, right alongside it, but it would not be a stop that would be like particularly interesting, okay? I was gonna say, I've driven through this whole little strip of I-65 and I don't know, I couldn't tell you where Reddington is. Yeah, I realized I said Reddington, it is Remington. Um, oh, Remington. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Sorry I, guys, we're in Remington, Indiana. Yeah, Still so don't Remington, know where that is. No, no. It's an itty bitty, itty bitty, bitty, bitty town. And actually, I don't think it's too far from uh, Delphi. It's not far from Delphi. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. So we can kind of track Jean's night a little bit. Uh, between midnight when her colleague left and 4.30, sounds like it was a quiet night. Nobody came to the front desk. At 4.30, Jean made a courtesy call to one of the guests. You know how, like, back in the day, you could have a hotel front desk call you to mm-hmm. wake you up? Yeah, um, yeah. When the person who picked up that call um, answered, Jean did not sound like she was in duress, that the person could tell. But this, you know, there was no relationship between this guest and Jean. So, you know, what's the baseline? But yeah. for this person's knowledge, it did not seem like anything was off with Jean. So just like at the other hotel at six o'clock AM, people are trying to check out of the days in in Remington and nobody was at the front desk. Mm-hmm. When they got there, the uh, morning replacement for Jean had already shown up and was trying to get into the side office um, that typically uh, Jean would have had the key for, but the person relieving her did not have a key for so mm-hmm. usually that was part of the handoff was that yeah. Jean would let them into the side office and the person relieving her, the police roll up and they're like, do you work here? And uh, her colleague is like, yeah, but I can't get in. <laughs> What's going on? Um, so at that point, uh, that hotel's manager, Sharon, was contacted and she you know, comes to the hotel as well, trying to figure out what's going on. When I say that these things are happening in very, very, very close succession, I really, really mean it. Uh, and we'll yeah. talk about times in a minute here. Yeah. I'm trying to, like, figure out in my head because you said they're, what, about an hour away from each other? They're an hour away from each other. Uh, what is hard about this is that Merrillville is on Central Time and Remington is on Eastern Time. So when you look at the timelines here, yes, it's a very, very confusing. So uh, when I give you a time... We're working off of central time just because I started with Merrillville, even though Remington is in Eastern time zone, just to kind of put our confusion at ease. Okay. So anyone who doesn't know, a lot of the Indiana cities that are like considered exurbs of Chicago go on central time to stay with Chicago people. Isn't that dumb? I mean... 
here's my thing. Okay, I live in the last county in Indiana that is um, in Eastern time. And literally, like the town that I live in, the county line is the end of town. So mm-hmm. you, like where the CVS and the cemetery is at. Um, and so then here in central time, which means that the schools that my city is served by are in central time. While the people oh, that actually live in this town God. are in Eastern. Isn't that bonkers? Figure your shit out. I hate it so much. I know. Which is why the town hall sells mugs that say school time or town time on them. Because that's how people figure out what the hell's going on in this town. That's the most towny shit in I know. the world. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm living in Star Cello. Uh With more Trump fans. All right. So... Jean is missing from the hotel. When Sharon arrived, like I said, uh, they were finally able to get the that registration office open, that side door. Uh, and that is where they found out that another robbery had taken place. Uh, this time, about 250 bucks was missing. And of course, Jean, like I said, was missing. But her personal effects, just like with Peggy, were still there. Her purse, keys, and school books were still present at the front desk. Um, So, again, not looking like she left of her own accord. Very, very, very unfortunately, at about the same time, a school bus driver driving along a rural road, County Road 150 West, called the Indiana State Police to report a body on the side of the road that appeared to be female. State troopers arrived at that scene and it is confirmed that those remains would be Jean Gilbert's. Jean, uh, that just makes me really sad because, well, it is really sad because again, we see an escalation even within Mm -hmm. the same night. Which direction was like on which side of the road, which direction was the driver going where they left her body? That is such an important question. I'm really glad you asked it. So uh, the location of the body being found was to the south of town in Remington. And so what was surmised was that the uh, her killer had driven down uh, until they got to a rural exit. Mm-hmm. One without shops, gas stations, or hotels. Uh, and that did not take long. I believe it was the first or second exit off of yeah, probably. the highway um, and that, and heading south. And that, that is So they were they headed south off. from Merrillville to Remington and then, okay. And then okay, south so again. Consistently headed south on 65. Yep, exactly. Exactly. On this particular night, yeah. Mm-hmm. There was actually a different county responding. So you've got a couple of different, um, like, police entities responding. But what... We could kind of figure out as far as a timeline went was that um, so Jean had made that wake up call at 430 um, and guests reported that they started showing up at the front desk a little bit after five o'clock a.m. So sometime between 430 and five o'clock is when Jean was um, subdued either by force uh, or ordered physical force or emotional force. And that the key to the registration office had been given to her killer, that the cash drawer was forced open, and that the money was taken 
the big difference is that this time, not only did he take money, but he took Jean as well. Yeah, yeah. It is not known whether or not Jean's body was found at the location of her murder itself. There was no blood at the scene in the hotel. So the conclusion was drawn that she was alive and led to a vehicle, most Mm -hmm. likely. Mm -hmm. And her killer had driven with her in the car down I-65. So um, he drives on I-65. He reaches the exit for State Road 18, which, again, is a very rural road. He um, drives until he hits that um, 150, County Road 150, uh, and that is where he leaves her body. It seems likely to me that there was probably not a third location in play, just given that proximity. Uh, that's never been officially stated. I'm going to open this Coke Zero real quick. Because <laughs> <laughs> the Rubeus is working hard here. I need to cut it. Um, so I personally uh, feel like it's unlikely that there was a third location just because we're talking about a really tight distance here. So it just seems unlikely to me that somewhere between and also that he mm-hmm. put a, a dead body back in his car. This mm-hmm. person is clearly escalating uh, in their boldness and what he's willing to do. But that to me, driving with a dead body in the car feels like it kind of jumps a few steps. You know what I mean? Are we certain that she was dead in the car or did he take her and kill her elsewhere? We we are very sure that she was led to the car alive she was so she was led to, she was led to the car alive mm-hmm. okay okay yeah it just a, an argument would rise up that she had been taken to a second location killed mm-hmm. there put back in the vehicle and then driven to the spot on the side of the road i'm not with that because where would that be and there was nowhere in the hotel that it looked like it could have been that would take so much effort to kill someone, drag a body back into a car. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. Was she sexually assaulted as well? Yes, she was. Okay. Um, she, I will talk about the condition of her body. She was nude. Uh, she still had socks and shoes on, but that was it. Uh, and jewelry. Her uniform was never recovered. Some would say that it was taken as a souvenir. Others, it was probably just thrown out uh, somewhere, but it's never been recovered. Mm-hmm. Her body did show evidence of being uh, dragged somewhere, likely out of the vehicle, uh, yeah. with scrapes and scratches. Um, none of those would be fatal wounds. Of course. Yeah. But uh, there, there wasn't a definitive statement that she had been raped, but... They did say that there was a sexual assault and uh, multiple samples of DNA. Okay. So there was a sexual assault that happened. She, like the other two women, had been shot this time three times. She had been shot twice in the back of the head, once behind her left ear, like the other women. And then she was also shot in her torso, which was actually the fatal shot. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the... The only like small snippet of evidence that they could kind of use to help figure out a tighter time frame was that um, in the vicinity of where her body was found, a nearby farmer heard two gunshots. 
it wouldn't be unusual to hear a couple of gunshots in rural Indiana um, mm-hmm. at any time, but uh, they were able to kind of when interviewing people nearby, they were able to, you know, surmise that, you know, and that those were at about 530. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, which to kind of remind us is an hour after the last known contact with Jean, which is when she placed that wake up call. Yeah. Yeah. So the conclusion then that we can draw is that Jean was taken from the days in at about 4.30 a.m. Mm-hmm. And 4.30, 4.35, very tight in that window, that she was led alive to a vehicle, driven to this rural location, shot somewhere between 4.30 and about 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. So whoever our killer is was busy that night. Very much so. Very much so. The idea that he took two victims in one night is fascinating. Me too. Me too. Like, I wonder what what happened with that first victim. That Yeah. Yeah. Behavioral analysis being what it is, that he wasn't satisfied, that he mm-hmm. wasn't. Yeah. What's interesting to me between um, Vicky and the night that Peggy and Jean were both killed was that there is a two-year period mm-hmm. where, to our knowledge, nothing happened. Yeah. There will be other cases I'm going to mention that I believe could be tied to this, mm-hmm. which obviously would just be me making some um, some leaps, some, leaps. some guesses. But uh, it would explain a long cooling off period like that and would explain mm-hmm. a degree of escalation. So I will say, I'm not sure if I stayed well ready, but... Vicky was killed with a 38 and Peggy and Jean were killed with a 22. So this person was obviously also somebody that owned a couple of different firearms. Um, Again, we're in Indiana. Like right. that's, it's not weird. It's not weird, mm-hmm. but I do think it's worthy of mention. Yeah. 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 So this time, um, obviously these two crimes happened virtually at the same time. So literally to make this happen, this guy didn't even really take a break. He, mm-hmm. he murdered Peggy. Uh, he got in the car. He drove to Remington. Arguably, he drove until he saw another hotel. Yeah. I guess the other significant town you'd hit would be Rensselaer. Um, but I don't think there's... I don't see a hotel in Rensselaer off the highway. So... I kind of think that he... Oh, there's a comfort suites up there, but I don't know if it was there in the 80s. I think he just drove until he saw the next hotel. Yeah. Honestly. Um, And he got the car, and for whatever reason, he felt the need to escalate. And to take her this time. Yeah. 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 It is. So the two cases are linked immediately, obviously, which throws law enforcement for quite a loop because they, like us, are having that same reaction. Mm-hmm. And nobody in either location had seen this guy. So we have mm-hmm. no description. We have uh, the bus driver that discovered the body also reported seeing a car in the vicinity, a white uh, or cream colored vehicle. Uh, nothing came of a lead from that vehicle. So we don't have a car that links the two. We don't have a description. All we have is this crazy tight tie frame of two days ends, having murders take place with an escalation, uh, within one set of early morning hours. Mm -hmm. 
It is not until later that they are tied to Vicky's case, but they're at least obviously tied to each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, what happens next is that in 1990, a 21-year-old hotel clerk at a Columbus, Indiana Days Inn. So let me pull up Columbus for us so that we know where that is. Another very small town. Where is Columbus, Indiana? Columbus, Indiana is south of Indianapolis along I-65. You're, uh, you're south of Indianapolis. You're about halfway, a little bit less than halfway between Indy and Louisville. So also a rural small town. Population is currently 50,000. Hmm. So smaller town. Um, yeah, that's decent size for yeah. that area. Yeah, I would say so. It's suburban. Um, on January 2nd of 1990, a hotel clerk is attacked at the Days Inn in Columbus, Indiana. So we are a year later. Um, that fateful night in 89 was when Peggy and Jean were murdered. Now we're January of 1990. Again, the the tightness of these time frames, as far as the season, I think is very compelling. Um, we have nothing going on in the summers with this person. Um, this suggests to me seasonal employment, perhaps. Mm. This victim, who doesn't have a name because she survived, her name was withheld, was working the night shift when she was approached, sexually assaulted, stabbed, and robbed. This time, the perpetrator used a knife to threaten this young woman. He did not threaten her at gunpoint. And just like the other cases, it was a quiet night. But now at least we have a survivor of this attacker who's able to provide a description. I should say also that it was about five o'clock in the morning. So the same time of night. So Mm -hmm. uh, she described this man as looking like a typical trucker. Um, which would be a lot of what the clientele would be along these highway hotels, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Blue jeans, plaid shirt, about six feet tall, late 30s to early 40s, medium-length brown and gray hair, which was covered by a dark hat. The hair that was not hidden by the hat was yucky, greasy, and matted. He had a long beard, which was also brown and gray like his hair. Um, but his eyes were extremely distinct. Okay. This individual had incredibly striking green eyes. So green mm-hmm. that she described them as almost yellow. Which reminds me of my husband. Because his eyes are like <laughs> that. They're like alien eyes. Interesting. Because like everything up until the eyes, I'm like, bro, you just described half the Midwest. Yes. <laughs> he also... Had I was a lazy like, I could eye. be my dad, I right? could be my uncle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's got these crazy supernatural green eyes, mm-hmm. uh, and he's and one of them is a lazy eye. Ah, uh, okay. That's pretty distinct. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, she believed that it was his right eye that appeared to be the lazy eye when she furnished the description. That's what she thought. Mm-hmm. When he entered the lobby to interact with her, the interaction began friendly which I think follows suit with uh, the change between Vicky's case and Peggy and Jean's. Yeah. Um, yeah. Almost charming, she would say. Chatty, 
asked her for some change and then asked for like a breakfast restaurant nearby. So he appeared to leave uh, to go chase down one of those breakfast restaurants. He comes back in 20 minutes later carrying a cup of coffee. He then proceeds to throw the cup of coffee in her face, basically blinding her temporarily and burning her. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, he jumps behind the counter, robs the, um, the till and her, takes her purse and her jewelry, and again threatens her with the knife. He drags her towards the back of the hotel uh, where he rapes her. He then orders her to go outside and says, don't turn around and keep walking. She does. She does not turn around. She keeps walking. She walks. And just like before, we're talking about winter. She -hmm. walks through a frozen, like a a half frozen stream up a hill. And she makes it to a trailer park where she knocks on a door, random door. She's let in by a woman living there um, and calls the police. And uh, she calls the police at about 5.55. So according to her report, her whole ordeal was about 55 minutes long. He arrived at Mm -hmm. 5 o'clock. He came back with the hot coffee at about 5.15, 5.20. And by 5.55, she was making that 911 call. That's so odd. Yeah. Isn't it? Okay, keep going. I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'm intrigued by his, like, constantly changing behavior. Little idiosyncrasies, right? Um, like, like certain, certain things are so consistent. But then the biggies are, like, he's all over the map. Like, he can't decide what he wants to do. Yeah, I also think it's very strange to go from um, two different guns to a knife. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one of those biggies. Yeah. It's like, what am I killing with? What am that, I attacking with? to me is the with? weirdest one. It makes me kind of wonder if he did not intend to kill her for whatever reason. If instead uh, he had gone into the other hotels with the intention to kill, but this time wasn't planning on going through with it. Maybe he had something else going on maybe he you know i don't know maybe I, she she was very young she was only 21 maybe she reminded him of something that's true yeah that's true peggy I peggy i think in some ways you could see it as like an attempt at an escalation mm-hmm. because a knife is seen as so much more like mm. personal that's a really good point um and then maybe once it got that personal he couldn't go through with it yeah that's a good point that's a good point. That it's hadn't occurred to me. Yeah, that hadn't occurred to me. I like that idea. I think that's really interesting. Well, I don't like it, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so a sketch was taken based on her report. And the original sketch was really bad. Um, Can I Google it? I want to Google like, it. Like really bad. Like sometimes you wonder about about these sketches. <laughs> oh my God. Uh-huh. So that black and white one is the first one, which basically looks like I opened my notebook and I drew a picture of Gordon Lightfoot or Chuck Norris in a ski cap. They're all bad. Oh, yeah. Jesus. The colorized one uh, is an updated one that um, happened 
when they got a better artist in, basically. <laughs> Which, like, I'm very curious about the politics where they're like, this sketch is uh, not helpful. We're going to go ahead and uh, get this better guy in here and make a better drawing. There's, and then there, so there's like one colorized sketch, and then there's a one that's very much like it, but like elongated. Mm-hmm. I, oh dear, but yeah, the black and white one is like, boy, what you doing? Yeah, it's it's pretty goofy. It's pretty goofy. Okay. Anyway, and like going. not to insult somebody's work, but like, wow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, wowzers. Uh... So, so. So, so, so. Where did I leave off on my notes? Okay. So what is extremely unfortunate is that there was obviously a lot of immediate media interest in what looked like the spree killing that night. Um, But because of the nature of the crime where it obviously looked like somebody passing through, there were no leads right Mm -hmm. there was no way for the investigation to heat up so by the attack in 1991 they are calling him the days and killer and that is at that point his last known attack okay so the investigations in these cases dried up pretty quickly oh that i'm sorry the columbus attack was 90 not 91 Um, the investigations dried up, uh, and it was considered a cold case until 2008. In 2008, the DNA was run through and was able to link now the three cases. So we're able to link Vicky's case finally officially to Peggy's case, as well as Jean's case. Okay. That is thanks to the Kentucky State Police. Good job, you guys. Good job, Um, guys. Interestingly, DNA at that time also linked the same perpetrator to at least four cases of motel clerks along the I-65 who were raped and robbed. All of those attacks occurred between January and March. So four outside of the ones that we've already talked about? Correct. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. So what we have... January and March, huh? Yep. So what we have is uh, three murders and at least five rapes that are all occurring between January and March of various years in the late 80s to early 90s. Yeah. 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 So uh, this led to the suspicion that um, this person was a truck driver based on, obviously, the proximity to the I-65 corridor. So we've got the DNA linking these cases all together. At that point, we still did not have any particular identification of this person. That is until genetic genealogy gets a hold of it. What we had by 2010 was a link between, like I said, three murders and at least five rapes. And then finally, on April 5th, 2022, as in a few weeks ago, bam, this rapist and killer is finally identified using genetic genealogy. Damn. Genetic genealogy identified 
the killer as the late Harry Edward Greenwell. I'll talk a little bit about Mr. Greenwell here, okay? So I'm going to start my conversation about Mr. Greenwell by reading his obituary. You ready? You tell me about uh, what you think about this person based on the obit. All right, I can't wait. Greenwell, Harry Edward, 68, of New Alban, Iowa, passed away January 31, 2013, in Lansing, Iowa. Harry, a man with many friends who loved his straight-up attitude and his willingness to help anyone. His spirit will live on in many by good deeds he offered. As an employee of the Canadian Pacific Railroad, providing public safety for 30 years, he retired February 2010. Harry enjoyed organic gardening, selling his organic produce at the local farmer's market, traveling, reading, wordsmithing, avid college sports fan, and selecting winning thoroughbred horses. Born on December 9, 1944 in Louisville to Paul and Dorothy Greenwell. He is survived by his wife, Julie Jenkins, uh, with several other relatives. A celebration of his life will be held 1 to 6 p.m. Saturday in the community center of New Elban, Iowa, followed by a special mass at the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church of Lansing, Iowa on Sunday. Your thoughts? Sounds pretty typical. Mm -hmm. Sounds like he's, you know, your pretty typical midwestern dude yeah and who sounds like masked a lot of what he did yes. so when did you say he died 2013 13 huh and his last known murder was 90 huh interesting yeah so he uh died of cancer at the age of 68 in 2013 his last residence was in New Elban, Iowa. He died in Lansing, Iowa, which is not far um, from New Elban. I assume it was where his nursing home was or a hospital or a rehab center uh, or what have you. So talk a little bit about what else we know of his past. Okay. Like I said, genetic genealogy uh, identified him through uh, DNA matches with a close family member who that person is. We do not know. But confirmative, confirmative is not a word, but I'm going with it. Testing. I like it. <laughs> Thank it should you. should be a word. Um, so confirmation testing by the Indiana State Police uh, returned a match possibility of 99.999% probability. Damn. So he's the dude. So uh, nobody in Greenwell's life had any idea about what he was doing during the January to March season of the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. What we had on record for him up until that point was an 89 arrest, 1989 arrest for a traffic violation and a domestic incident in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He was also awarded or arrested for violating a restraining order um, in 89. I believe that to be against a previous domestic partner. He was also arrested at one point in 1998 for uh, drug possession in Iowa. So a small, minor criminal history, nothing too interesting. So I'm going to talk about his wife, Julie, uh, a little bit because she has spoken to media. He was married before that to another woman who did die in a house fire uh, in Wisconsin. That house fire has not been... Um, 
thought of as arson or anything insidious. Okay. But I put that out there as interesting. Um, he has one a child of his own, like nat biological child, and he also has an adoptive child from a previous marriage that had gone south. So he's been married a few times, okay. but he did adopt a child as a result of one of those marriages. So he has two children. He was one of many siblings, uh, about seven of them, big family, big Catholic family in Louisville, Kentucky. That's all we know of his early life. What I can tell you about his married life with Julie, uh, she was married to him for 20 years. So she was not his first wife, but she had absolutely no idea whatsoever that this was going on in his life. Interesting. Yes. She told the independent, quote, I'm lucky to be alive. She huh. had no idea. He, uh, according to Julie Jenkins, um, he did not have any violence towards her. She was not a victim of domestic abuse. He occasionally had a hot temper, um, but not um, a violent temper. It sounds like he was a yeller, but not anything you know, more than that. She says to the independent quote, I keep thinking about our life together. And he was kind. He was caring. He did have a temper, but that's not unusual. I don't think you kill people because you're mad at them. Not strangers. I don't know what to think about much of it. Other than that, I feel horrible for the families that dealt with that for so many years. And I know there's nothing I can do. I'm sorry. I had no idea. Hmm. I'm going to continue quoting this article from The Independent. When asked about authority suspicion her husband could have been the perpetrator to more victims, Ms. Jenkins said, it's certainly a possibility. When you know what you do about serial killers, they generally don't just stop. So I hope, no, I pray that there aren't going to be more victims that he's linked to, but I fear there's a real possibility. I'm sorry for those people as well. It makes me not trust my judgment. This poor woman... Mm-hmm. Like, this just hurts my heart for her. She's a grandma living in rural Minnesota, and she's mourning this man that she was with for 20 years. And then all of a sudden, nine years after he's dead, come to find out he's a serial killer and a serial rapist. Like, how awful is that? It's kind of fascinating how somebody can live such a double life. It is, isn't it? Like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around. Like, he obviously has a history of violence. He has, like, the domestics from Mm -hmm. previous marriages. But I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to me. It is to me, too. What I think is notable and interesting about his timeline, too, though, is that, um, so he was married to Julie for 20 years before he died, which means that they got married in about 1993. Mm-hmm. We don't have him implicated in any crime after that time. Yeah. So I wonder if there was something about their marriage. Maybe they moved somewhere that made it harder for him to get to the I-65 corridor. Um, it mm-hmm. would be kind of a hike from Iowa. They, he had spent time before that in Wisconsin, which would be an easier trip to that corridor. Um, he worked for the railroad. There's nothing that I could find about his job that would take him up and down the 65 corridor. But I do know that kind of work to be seasonal. So I wonder if he was just kind of doing trips 
on his own excursions. Yeah, it's interesting because he was born in Louisville, but it sounds like mm-hmm. he bounced all around the Midwest throughout his yeah. life. But then yeah. for those few years traveling up and down 65, what the hell was happening yeah. to him? What the hell was going through his head that he did that? Yeah. And then to come home and be a relatively normal guy, um, he had he had confessed to Julie at one point that he had a um, a robbery charge in his past. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, well, that's, it's rough, yeah. but, you know, you did your time, you were honest about it, stuff happens when you're young, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's all she huh. ever knew of him as far as him having, like, a, any kind of sordid past or anything like that. Um, now, there are a couple of other crimes that I want to mention briefly um, that I do wonder about. So we've got Lois Wright, who is 41, uh, who lived in Rockford, Illinois, not far from you. Uh, She went by the name Evelyn. That was her middle name. Uh, Evelyn worked the night shift at the Colonial Inn Best Western uh, off of the I-90 in Rockford. Yep. Her husband, Daniel, dropped her off for work that night, which was... Saturday, December 17th, 1988, which is in that, mm-hmm. like, potential cooling off period. Yep, yep, yep. He typically, her husband, Dan, would hear from her about 6 a.m. to say, hey, yo, pick me up from work. He did not get that call. He finally did get a hold of her at 6.15. She answered and said, hey, sorry, I was busy. They said goodbye. Uh, after she says, hey, come pick me up at 8 o'clock. Somewhere mm-hmm. in between 6.15 um and 7:15 ish Evelyn was shot and killed at the front desk of that colonial inn. Hmm. She was shot in the chest. And at that point the perpetrator robbed the hotel. Her body was discovered by a guest when it was time to check out. The gun used in that case was a 44 uh, and she was hmm. shot like I said in the chest. So not that head wound. Yeah, um, yeah. This other one is also, I think, compelling. Uh, December 31st, 1988, uh, a male victim, James Walton, worked overnight at the Envoy Inn in Florence, Kentucky, which is just off of 71 and 75, that kind of juncture down there. Um, yeah. South of Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, it's a terrifying juncture. I can imagine. I hate when highways do that. Um, he was shot multiple times by a 44, uh, just like Evelyn had been while working the front desk at the Envoy Inn. Uh, His attack Hmm. happened about uh, 6.30, a little bit before 6.30 a.m. This time, guests did hear some commotion in the front, uh, and a description was taken of a man seen in the lobby uh, right before the altercation took place. This man was described as 30 to 40 years old, about six feet tall, six six foot or six one, with a heavy build, um, reddish brown slash graying hair, plaid shirt, scraggly beard. So those cases were kind of linked together because of the type of gun um, mm-hmm. and the um, obviously the hotel link, the overnight link. They were much further apart from each other than the other, these other cases, 400 miles. So they have not been officially linked. 
to any other known killing spree of any kind. However, there are potential commonalities there that I think are compelling. So, look, I think that I want to kind of end this episode by talking through what we know of the timeline of Harry Edward Greenwell's crimes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they do go far back when we are able to really dig into his past. So so he had more on his record than his wife, Julie, at the time of his death knew. Okay. So the earliest known crime that we have is on January 17th of 1963, uh, an armed robbery in Louisville. He is uh, 19 at that crime. Mm-hmm. Same year, April 12th, he is convicted and sentenced uh, of that crime. He serves two years and then is on probation for another five years. It's February 23rd of 65, he is arrested in Jefferson County, Kentucky for sodomy. Mm. Yeah. So that's his first violent crime. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the armed robbery, but doesn't sound like anyone got hurt. That's his first assault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so April 28, 1978, his wife died in that house fire that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I can see, from what I can dig into, again, like my gut doesn't say that that was anything but an accident. Of course, there's always the possibility when you're dealing with a violent person that it wasn't an accident. Mm-hmm. He remarried in 80 uh, to somebody else. He is arrested in uh, June of 1982 for burglary. Uh, Interestingly, when he was in custody for that burglary, he escaped custody twice and had to be recaptured. Interesting. Mm -hmm. He was sentenced to Anamosa State Penitentiary in Iowa that August for that crime. And then was released in December of 83. February 21, 1987 is when Lucille or Vicki Lucille Heath is killed at the Super 8 in Elizabethtown. 88, to our official knowledge, nothing happened. The two crimes I was talking about before um, in Illinois and, sorry, Rockford, Illinois and Florence, Kentucky, uh, those two crimes happened in um, the winter of 88. So I am kind of curious if in the next couple of years we do see a link uh, between him and those crimes. Okay. Hmm. Killing a man is an outlier, but yeah. um, he does have this history of a lot of robberies, uh, burglaries that he, you know, was perpetrating. And I think it's interesting to think about like motives in order. If, mm-hmm. you know, is it a robbery first and then you know, he snaps sexually or is it a sexual crime first and the robbery is second, you know? So, uh, back to our timeline, March 3rd of 89 is when Peggy and Jean are killed in Merrillville and Remington, Indiana, respectively. March 9th of 89. So just a few days after, um, the murders, the, uh, night of the double murders, he is arrested in La Crosse, Wisconsin, where he was living at the time for a traffic violation. Um, and then a little while later, on the 23rd of March, arrested for a domestic incident mm-hmm. and also arrested for a violation of a restraining order. He is also arrested for trespassing on April 18th of 89. 
I assume hmm. against um, the woman that had the restraining order against him. So he had a lot of anger going on toward mm-hmm. a specific woman at this time. Definitely, which interesting psychologically, right? Mm-hmm. So then January 2nd of 1990 is the rape of the Dazen clerk in Columbus, Indiana. 91 to 97, we have nothing. Approximately 93 is when he marries Julie Jenkins. Hmm. For some reason to me, that is important. Yeah. October 11, 1998, he's arrested in Iowa for possession. November 13, 98, he's arrested for a violation of a restraining order. November 16, that case is dismissed. Hmm. And then we have nothing between 99 and 2013 when he dies of lung cancer. Interesting. He wasn't that old. No, he wasn't. Uh, he's in his 60s. But I do wonder what his health was like in those last from 99 to 2013. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't find like how like when he was diagnosed with cancer or anything like that. It sounds to me like he was probably sick for a while. Just based mm-hmm. on kind of like the context clues from this conversation with Julie Jenkins and this independent article. Yeah. It's I don't know. That period where he has all of those domestic disputes is the same period as all of the murders Mm -hmm. it's almost as if we should start taking domestic violence seriously -uh, now you're talking crazy (laughs) you need to go to bed go home i mean i do but i know same we were oh my gosh so uh that's the timeline of harry greenwell's life as we know it i'm going to give you a couple more snippets from julie so when he was in hospice care Julie noted that uh, towards the end, he asked for a priest. The priest came. Now, she's not Catholic, so um, she kind of conjectures here that uh, she wondered if, especially in retrospect, he had called the priest in for confession. Um, As a cradle Catholic, I think it's also very likely that he called in for last rites. Yeah. yeah. If if you're not Catholic, you might not know that last rites exist. I don't know. Yeah, but I also think that most, like, born and bred Catholics would do that in hospice. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, But, so she says, I just assumed that the priest would be obligated to tell somebody he did this if he did do this. Not true. So just to, (laughs) we need to say that again. It's not true. Um, They are not obligated to tell. So she, again, I just feel so bad for this woman. She was contacted by the FBI, obviously, when um, her late husband was ID'd as this rapist and murderer. And then she heard no more of it until press conferences and press releases start to happen. So no, no warning to this family before this shit went public. Okay, that feels kind of unfair. Yeah, yeah. So she had to find out from her son, who saw it on the news and called her, and was hit, like, hey, um, throw on the news. Harry's hey, dad's case a serial being, killer. Yeah. She does say again, if she had known anything, she would never have been silent about it. And she says, quote, it's terrifying. And my children feel the same way. I mean, I left them alone with him when I was at work. I live with my son and his family. And I have a grandchild who Harry thought was pretty special. They had a connection. She says that her 17-year-old granddaughter is pretty devastated about her about it i should say 
So she says the whole family is reeling from the news. She described it as a sucker punch when the FBI contacted her. This can't be real. This can't be. Um, And then the agent told her, don't you think that families have the right to know? And she said, absolutely, they do. And so she told them what she could, which was very little. Um, And the final quote I'm going to throw at you from her is, quote, I guess you think you know somebody. I thought I knew him, but apparently I didn't know him very well. Mm -hmm. And that is where I'm going to end today's case. That just makes me wonder so much about their relationship. What was their relationship like? What did she know about him? What face did he show her? Yeah, I mean, she describes it as peaceful. So whoever he was with her was not who he was in his private Mm -hmm. life, you know? And then you've got this image of this, like, jolly grandfather, like, tall, lanky old guy doing, like, organic gardening and selling his zucchini at the farmer's market, you know? Hmm. Which is just... I mean... Really trippy. Masking is one thing, but it's... That's... Yeah, that's a lot. And so, like, when he got the felony possession charge, uh, he was married to her at that point. Mm -hmm. Um... And then there was also a violation of a restraining order um, that year as well in 1998. But that case was dismissed. So you kind of mm-hmm. wonder, like, maybe you didn't know about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if she didn't know about, like, the, the restraining order thing. And yeah. just, what? I, I feel like if God. you know that about somebody, you probably are wary about them. Or at least you would say, like, well, he did have this domestic abuse past. But she even said... Um, I I didn't repeat it from the article, but she also had said that when she met uh, Greenwell, that she was scared because she had just gotten out of an abusive marriage, Mm. um, but that he was this, like, nice, gentle guy that she felt like she could trust. So Hmm. he was, I don't know what you could call masking to that degree, super masking. Huh. I want to know everything about their relationship. Me too. Like, what that dynamic was like, yeah. Yeah, and also with his family, with his kids, uh, with his stepkids, yeah. Um, Most of his, by the time he died, most of his siblings were also gone, as well as his parents, obviously. So um, there's not much to be known there. I read some obituaries, did some Facebook stalking, nothing compelling, nothing Mm -hmm. out of the ordinary. Lots of people that kind of grew up in Louisville and mostly stayed in the definitely stayed in the Midwest. Um, I think the furthest person I saw went to Maryland. So yeah. Yeah. Um, just nothing that would make it look like anything, but like an all American large Catholic family, to be honest. Yeah. 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 Huh? Yeah. Hmm. So any other hmm. concluding thoughts? I um, am going to answer my own question. <laughs> Sorry. And then you can answer it. (laughs) Um, I do have the suspicion that uh, he will be linked to more cases. I I, I don't think I would go so far as to, like, bet my life on it, but I would be willing to bet, like, a cool crisp 50 bucks that uh, he is linked to more rapes, if not more murders, in the coming years. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think he'll probably be linked to more. Um. I am so curious to see if there are more outside of I-65 and even after he moved to Iowa, Mm -hmm. because that last 
14 years? Nothing? Yeah. Really? To me, it's it's 88 that stands out, and that's why those murders um, in Rockford and Florence are so compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Like, especially Rockford being off the 90, which runs right through Iowa, um, yeah. made me wonder, like, because it's, you know, some serial killers do take a year off, but to have killed Vicky, take a year off, and then to go on a spree killing just seems like we're missing something in the middle there. See, to me, it do- it doesn't shock me to see, like, a longer cooling off period after the first one because it's like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I'm going to get caught, blah, 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 blah. And that takes a long time to process. And before it hits of, like, oh, I didn't get caught. Oh, I can do this again mm-hmm. kind of thing. But, yeah, it- I think there's more. There's got to be more. Yeah, yeah. I think I think 88 is hiding a secret. Mm-hmm. I really do. I really do. Hmm. Other than being the year that brought me into the world. Yay. Yay. So, yeah, that's that's all I got for you on that one. But, uh, yeah, I well, thought I have this... more questions than answers. Yeah. Okay. What, what are your <laughs> thoughts? What are your thoughts? I'm just... Yeah, that's such a weird pattern. It's such a weird pattern that doesn't make sense. I just, I wonder what his mental state was, and it doesn't seem like it was a stable mental state. Yes, yes. Like, he's all over the map in terms of the crimes that were committed during those years, Mm -hmm. and the way he committed the crimes. Like, he clearly was not a methodical, thought-out serial killer. Right. Yeah. He was chaotic. Yes, yes. And that's what stood out to me looking at his whole timeline. It's like an armed robbery, a burglary, a restraining order, this, 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 all over the place. And then this gun to this gun to a knife, back to this gun. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is so scattered. And we don't see that. The only thing that is methodical is location. Operating up and down highways um, is, in many ways a way that um, makes it easier to get away with serial killing. We see that with like Israel keys trademark Mm -hmm. would be to kidnap somebody immediately drive them to a different County, if not a different state, typically a different state. Yeah. There's tons of serial killers that like worked along the highway system. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've covered, you know, her Baumeister, Herbie, little old Herbie. Uh, I'm sure we'll cover more, uh, was, you know, and then there's a suspicion that her Baumeister was also the I-70 killer, um, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, certainly it's it's not an uncommon MO, but it just, it's interesting to me that that's the one thing about him that's methodical and the, and consistent, because it's always hotels, right? It's not hotels and 7-Elevens or hotels and gas stations. It's only hotels. Yeah, that surprised me, too, that it's always a hotel. And that would not be my first go-to of, like, oh, what's a quick place to kidnap somebody or to attack somebody? Yeah, especially after that first one where you learn that they don't actually keep a lot of money in hotels, like behind Mm -hmm. the desk. And that stayed consistent. He never got more than a couple hundred dollars. Um, So clearly he's not doing it for the money. I'm curious how much money he got during those robberies. Yeah, during the other ones, I'm really curious, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, some that was those go so far back. Like you can see the arrest record, but you can't see the, you know what I mean, like the details. 
it's funny because like what it makes me think of is like Leslie Irvin who like started doing robberies and like consistently escalated Mm -hmm. and like that was a very linear pattern yeah this guy like consistently escalated but his escalation was like you know really really up and down and wiggly but on an upward wiggle trend right like it wasn't like like a little inchworm finger motion you're doing (laughs) i wanted to draw it but i was like i'm just gonna do it with my little arthritic finger but like it is an upward trajectory but like on its way up it's like going all over the place you know but then again that last attack in 90 where he doesn't kill her and just has her walk out into the cold um is that a a new cruelty that he was trying to inflict being out in the cold like that Um, that one gets me that one fucking throws me off because like why did he get scared you know i i i'm not usually one for this type of conjecture but one thing that did strike me was um that you know that girl was 21 if she looked really young reminded him of a daughter stepdaughter i don't know um just trying to think of like any reason that she survived thank god that she did um Mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't make sense without some kind of personal spin on it because it otherwise is not like an escalation in other ways like I mean, it, certainly it was cold, you know, um, but he didn't, she was not forced to walk out of the hotel naked. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I just wonder, you know, cause 24, you know, like Peggy was 24 um, and 21 are not that different, but mm-hmm. you could look, you know, at 21, you could look like a teenager or you could look like you're 30 the exactly, same you know at 24 exactly. you could the same so if you know if the anonymous survivor was 21 but looked younger than that i wonder if there was a you know if there was something mm-hmm. in him that said nah don't do it i don't know yeah so what are we doing next week we actually have another serial killer really? on our docket for next week or in two weeks in two weeks Yes. We're going back to an old favorite of mine. Why are you like this? (laughs) Very good. And we will be doing the case of why are you like this? Robert Berdella. (gasps) Oh, finally. Okay, good. Not good, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Have you been waiting to do this one? Uh, It's been on my list, but I'm totally fine with you doing it. I think that's great. Oh, I didn't know he was on your list. I'm so sorry. By all means, have fun. Go for it. Go for it. It's okay. It's okay. There is so much out there about him and a lot, a lot of myths. And you guys know we love tackling the myth-heavy cases. We sure do. So we're going to uh, do one of my favorite activities, which is throwing Geraldo Rivera into a pit. Yes. I love it. But yeah, so we're going to be going into why are you like this Robert Berdella? And we will have so much to talk about. Yes. Oh, I'm so ready for this. This is going to be great. Okay. Very good. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'll take it off my list now. (laughs) 
Sorry. We no, should probably compare fun. lists again. We should, but then it's fun when we don't because I know. I just don't want to step on your toes. Other. I mean, my toes, they're small. It's fine. Okay. You know, although I did grow half a size with this pregnancy only in one foot. So that's fun. One's a seven and a half and one's a six and a half. How stupid is that? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, enough <laughs> about my feet. Let's say goodnight because I'm getting a little bit punch drunk and I need to go to sleep. <laughs> I am so tired. Uh, my migraine keeps trying to take over. Mm. And so I'm going to take a bunch of meds and then pass out. Perfect. Well, friends, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for hanging with my rollicking, crazy I-65 madness. Um Please, as always, follow us on the socials, leave us comments, leave us likes, uh, rate us in the app store, all that good stuff. We are at MidWretched everywhere. Um, we love hearing from people. It makes us Send really us happy. Send us an email. Send us a case suggestion. Yes. Tell us you love us. MidWretched at gmail.com or a Facebook message. We always answer those. So yeah. if you have a suggestion for a case, we are all about it. Ooh. All right, friends. All right, friend. Be nice. And eat cheese. And we love you. We love you. And we love each other. I just want to say that because you look really cute today. Heart, heart, and hearts. Okay, bye. Bye. definitely like singing to myself Lizzo's new song that just came out oh I haven't heard her new oh my gosh it's so good it's so it's just like so wildly catchy um so I was like in a minute I'm Anita it's in a minute man a woman to bump me up so I mean it's Lizzo it's got to be catchy oh my gosh what a genius I bought some of her um new active wear and I really like it oh really yes I'm wearing one of the bralettes right now and it legit fits and actually looks really good for like a bralette Cue me googling Lizzo yeah. activewear. It's really good. Cause really good. my boot, my boobies just don't. Yeah, you'll like this, and it's like very um, feels like nothing. Oh, it's so nice. Here, I'll show you. Like, it's so nice. It's got like the little sweet. Oh, that's oh, that's all cute too. Isn't that cute, yeah. Shit. Yeah, highly recommended. True to size too. <laughs>